And welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program addressing the ramifications of change in our communities and beyond, and how today's choices will impact tomorrow's community. This program is a project of Action for Healthy Communities, and it's provided in collaboration with KCBX and the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County. Our host today, Chris Kington Barker, will be speaking with guests Phyllis Davies and Dr. Tim LaSalle. They're going to discuss the urgent need to increase the spread of regenerative farming practices and the important work of Groundswell International. We're inviting you to listen, learn, and participate in our conversation today. We're live between 1 and 2, so you can call in and be part of the discussion today at 805-781-3875. Now, let's join Chris and her guests. Over to you, Chris. Thanks a lot, Brad. My two guests today, Phyllis Davies, first is a longtime local and international activist who fearlessly traveled alone through the United States in 61 foreign countries supporting women and promoting sustainable agriculture. She's worked for causes on local, state, and national and international levels through a lifetime of volunteering. In the 80s, she and her husband were active members of World Neighbors, which is now Groundswell International, promoting regenerative farming in developing countries all over the world. She's a member of Women in Black, a global network of women who actively oppose injustice, war, militarism, and violence. Tim LaSalle, Ph.D., is the co-founder for Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems, CSU Chico, and a board member for Groundswell International. Tim is also a former Cal Poly professor, a longtime resident of San Luis Obispo County, and a lifetime activist. As Rodale Institute's first CEO, Tim LaSalle, championed his science-based hope for regenerative food system that would mitigate climate change and prevent famine. He's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post and Tree Hugger. In today's show, we'll be talking about Tim and Phyllis's work and activism and the impact of Groundswell International in promoting regenerative farming and how that fits in with their own personal passions. And I want to thank both of you for being here with me today. Thank you, Chris. I'm exhausted just reading your bios, (laughs) and, and I read a very brief summary of it. My goodness, Phyllis, you've just had a lifelong, really um, fruitful, full adventure. That's true of my whole family, uh, and especially my mother's side of the family. And uh, gardening and food subsistence farming has been very important. Uh, and making sure that there's enough food on the table wherever we are. How did you How did you get from making sure there was enough food on your personal table to having this passion about making sure that there's food on so many other people's tables? We have a small farm, and uh, we decided we wanted the children to be citizens of the world and participatory citizens of the world. And and you have to be a donor in addition 
to being a participant. Mm. And um, we didn't have a lot uh, of funds to give. And uh, we knew the children, as they grew up, would not either, probably, uh, and because they wanted to take 10% of what they earned on the farm. And we wanted to make sure that it was efficient and effective. And we asked um, people where we went, and especially people that had worked overseas, returned Peace Corps volunteers and others, about who was doing the most effective work. Hmm. And um, we came with a methodology, came up, and we began watching for that. And that was what much of my travels were about. And uh, When you were traveling, you were traveling to learn what other people were doing. Uh-huh. Ah. And, uh, and if you ask the right questions, you learn a lot. But um, I traveled with a backpack by myself, much of it. Um, and uh, I used local transportation. And it, uh, but at any rate, it, it got me around and got me into lots of interesting adventures. Were you ever worried? Traveling by yourself? No. No. I just, uh, much of this travel happened after Derek died. And I knew I had an angel on my shoulder. Mm. And I just went. And uh, I never experienced any problems, uh, really, on my, I once had uh, a small bag taken that had a book in it. And uh, I, that's that's the extent of of the problems that I encountered. And just for reference, Derek was your son. Yes. And and Derek died at thirteen. At thirteen in a mid airplane collision. He was on his on his way to my brother's ranch in uh, Northern California. Yeah, and that was a really horrible accident that happened here in San Luis yes. County. It was out in Los Osos Valley. Yeah, yeah. And part, did, had you traveled before that? Or a little. A little bit, a lot of travel after Much, that. A lot of it. Yeah. Uh, and even the Steve Allen event we put on at the uh, Donna Inn, he was on the first trip that I took after Derek's death. And I remember I I flew a home Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. 1984. I remember that Steve Allen event that you held here in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you invited me to do some MC work, but I was so impressed with his compassion for people that lacked and the people that were hungry because mm. he had experienced hunger in his own exactly. life. Exactly. So as an entertainer that we thought, well, they're wealthy and they're whatever, Steve Allen had had a life experience that informed him there are a lot of people struggling in this world. And I remember when we got on the plane with Steve, he handed us a a folder that had stories of what was going on in in the country we were visiting. Mm -hmm. And he he had a full library at at home of of what 
he felt was important going in the country, going on in the country. So he was accompanying you on some of these trips, or you were accompanying well, I, him? Well, I didn't know him. I did, yeah. I just happened to be, be on the same trip. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. He was an amazing individual. Yeah. Yeah, I had not heard about Steve Allen, and and I did not know anything about him. Yeah, it was at the Madonna Inn. Yes, it was the first hundred dollar a plate dinner <laughs> that we uh, held in San Francisco. And what was the money raised for? For World Neighbors and their international food programs. And tell me a little bit, Tim, about um, World Neighbors. Is now um, oh, we have a. a we have a call from someone, from Ethan. Um, hold on just a moment here. Ethan, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Ethan. Um, Hi. Did you have a question or a comment? Yes, I had a question. I, I heard you talk. I've only been catching snippets of uh, the show, but I heard you talking about World Neighbors. Um, yeah. So I thought it might be interesting to ask um, you know, with all of the challenges in the U.S., why not focus on philanthropy at home instead of overseas? You know, we we know the state of agriculture in the U.S. is um, is in, it's a very difficult you know context to operate in, and a lot of farmers are struggling here. So, uh, why not focus on working here in the U.S. rather than overseas? Ethan, great question. Ethan, thank you for your question. Uh, I'd be happy to visit about that with you right now. Uh, First to say that um, Phyllis Davies and Bill and and Donna have watched this progression from World Neighbors to Groundswell, partly because the founders of Groundswell really came out of World Neighbors and developed this now 15-year-old organization that is focusing through agroecological efforts and regenerative efforts to help people become self-sustaining in food, actually produce surplus of food in many regions of the world where there's a shortage and where the rural poor are actually perhaps, they have access to land, but the land is tired and poor. And it's why Mm -hmm. this investment in building resilient systems has been a focus literally of groundswell. To your question, Ethan, of why should we be concerned here in San Luis Obispo about hunger Mm -hmm. and, and people that are struggling, particularly in the global south, there's a lot of good reasons for that. We know as climate change comes, the disruption is going to be major with respect to forced migration, and people are going to be displaced as food stresses increase with the climate crisis that's coming. How do we help their system to become more resilient so that they don't get displaced, for one, re- one thing? And two, how do we help them become more economically stable so they can send their children to school and that their children have better opportunities for the future? The other component to that I think that's really important is to understand that their political disruption around the world, and even if we think in terms of Syria and the real challenge that went on there, was exacerbated by the drought. It was a food crisis. Yes, it turned into a political crisis, but then that turned into a war. And I think we have to think in terms of what's our proactive response, not just through compassion to help others. That's, I think, crucial. And our concern mm-hmm. for children that are literally starving around the world. But how do we help create stability globally? Mm-hmm. Thank you for Great. your question, Ethan. 
Absolutely. Thank you for letting me uh, in on the conversation and for answering it. I appreciate it. I, we appreciate you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for that. And I think it was a good question because it's one you probably get from other people about what about people that are um, food deprived here, that are hungry here, even in this county, um, when you focus efforts on another another world, if you will. Yeah. And if I may just add to that, when I had come back, my wife and I lived in Africa for four years working with the Howard Buffett Foundation on this very issue of food security. And with regard to that, when we came back, I was pulled in to help the the state, California Association of Food Banks. And one of the beautiful things that the California Association has is access to a lot of donated food from farmers uh, in the in the produce arena. So mm-hmm. our food banks typically have more fresh produce than most of the country's food banks. But there's still one in four children in, in California that are food insecure. And one of the issues I helped them with was locate some protein because protein is often – what is the shortage here? Mm-hmm. And that was typically in milk and eggs. Uh, the meat industry was less inclined to support that system. But it was helpful to get that done. And the food banks are one way that we help try, I think, in our state to help a really a concern of how do we get healthy food into all of our children. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. If we could go back to talking about um, groundswell and you know what what exactly is the organization what what is its purpose what does it do and how well groundswell um and i really have to thank phyllis for kind of getting me so involved with it in a way because um the gathering she had here sort of introduced us to some of those leaders around the world when they would come to visit phyllis and the community she would gather here in san luis obispo county that I got to know and sometimes work with overseas over the course of years, and then to stay connected with them as they formed uh, Groundswell International, where, which is now serving 11 different countries by linking with local NGOs. So one of the beauties of the vision of Groundswell is they're coming in to work agroecologically and regeneratively in communities, focusing more with women and community building, but soil building so that there is food security, and then secondarily is local markets so that their economies can be built in a local scenario. They're not dependent on on outside markets, but they can help stimulate. As we know, every dollar spent within a community circulates about seven times versus that spent outside or for outside products disappears from, from communities. So they have that real not only sustainability, but sort of building the health of the system. And that there were 12 people that founded this uh, that all came out uh, uh, working together before with World Neighbors, and they're now celebrating 15 years of great successes. And when I was asked to be on the board, we had become donors uh, sincerely with this group. And I had seen some of their work in many different countries, in Nepal and Central America uh, and in Africa. I'd worked with them in Mali on one. Um, there was no question I'd be happy to serve as a volunteer board member uh, to see where we can help raise funds, where we can help with regard to the programming in, in helping the people in those countries. That's fantastic. And I'm Chris Kington Barker with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, your Central Coast listener-supported radio station. The voices you're hearing with me today are Phyllis Davies, a longtime local and international activist, and Tim LaSalle. Uh, PhD, co-founder of the Center for Regenerative 
Agriculture and Resilient Systems, CSU Chico, and a board member for Groundswell International. We're talking today um, about Tim and Phyllis's work and activism and their, um, their work with Groundswell International in promoting regenerative farming. We invite you to call in just like we had a caller already today um, to join us in the discussion by adding your comments or questions. You always enlighten the discussion, and we'd love to have you. It's 805-781-3875. And, um, Tim, when when we're talking about this kind of farming, regenerative farming, can you explain a little bit better? You were talking when you were talking to our caller about how it is different. You're you're helping to actually repair the ground that is not producing. I, right. If I'm understanding you, is no longer producing um, food. Right. Um, talk a little bit about what groundswell actually helps people learn to do. If we look at where we're headed globally, we're losing soil rapidly, mm-hmm. and tillage is one of the challenges with that. The other thing is is the heavy use of chemicals that come in start to kill off the biology as well. Tillage and, bi- and chemicals do that. When you go with an agroecological regenerative approach, you're going to work to build the life of the soil. And what that does, it's rather amazing, is it stimulates the life of the soil, the microbiome. It's like our gut biome. But what they do is they create a nutrient cycling. They can actually demineralize, or in other words, free up phosphorus or transport nitrogen or bring water to the plant without the plant having to do it itself. It's an exchange between the plant feeding the life of the soil and the life of the soil feeding the plant. Hmm. The benefits of it come to the, from the standpoint that you can get away from pesticides because the plant becomes its own self-defense mechanism by its healthy plant structure. Also, a good healthy biome fights against the pathogens that sometimes affect plants and create ill health, so you get healthier plants. What happens is, and, and I was able to prove to myself in Africa when, when Howard Buffett gave me the opportunity, that I could, I increased yields from what the smaller farmers were doing five times just through regenerating. Hmm. And that was with no outside inputs. I didn't bring anything in. It was just through managing and feeding the biology through plant roots. You just plant to feed the life and you get the results. We're doing that now in the United States in a larger and larger scale. And farmers are coming to this because their backs are against the wall with regard to costs. And they want to know, how can I reduce all these expensive inputs? And regenerative agriculture is an approach to do that. So we can build soil. We can build fertility. We can create more food security. But beautifully, we can capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis at a much greater rate and begin to reverse climate change because we're returning to the soil so much of that carbon that was lost to the atmosphere. And so there's a tremendous number of ecosystem services. There's more nutrient density in the food. And it's a matter of how we help educate and train. And it works for farmers at all scale. Phyllis and I and, and my wife were uh, together in Zimbabwe years ago looking at range management that can do the same thing in a very different way. Uh, we were together in Central America and understanding that we could build topsoils through what Roland was showing us, right, Phyllis? That we With could nitrogen build, fixing. Yes. Trees. And he could build an inch of topsoil a year. And Roland used to say, 
No textbook in the world says that's possible. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's what you were talking about, Phyllis. You learned not from a book, yeah. but you learned from listening to people that were doing it yeah. and succeeding in something that wasn't written about. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you – let me ask you this. What you're talking about with regenerative, how is that different than organic forming? Well, organic, uh, there was a farmer. I was just in, in Lemoore Friday trying to get some farmers to come on to do some um, trials with us at, at Chico, and that is to we put up eddy covariant towers in fields to measure CO2 influxes, how much is lost from the soil, how much is gained or captured through photosynthesis. And the farmer said, well, I've been trying to tell farmers, that, you know, regenerative agriculture is about building the soil and organics about no chemicals. <laughs> and it's kind of a simple explanation. So... A lot of us would like our food with no chemicals, and and um, that's great. But a lot of farmers go, I can't do that. I, I don't know how to do that, or I'm used to doing it the other way. So the regenerative run doesn't force farmers to stop chemicals, but what they soon learn is a lot of them they don't need, and some of them get to the point where they go, wow, I'm not using any. And two of those well-known, they're nationally known farmers, one from North Dakota, one from Indiana, now, then just said, well, heck. I'm organic by default, and they just applied for the extra money by marketing organic. But they were never even thinking that way. But their soils got so healthy, they didn't need the chemicals. So the difference is let's start by helping farmers transition to building the soil, building the soil life, and reducing their costs. They'll keep going. They're going to like the advantages, and and it'll help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can help them understand how to get there. When when someone who's a farmer here in the U.S. or a farmer in another country wants to change, what do they have to do differently? What do they have to actually invest in it? Or how do they have to change what they're doing in order to make it work? You know, it, it all begins to be context-specific based on what crop you're growing. So okay. if you have a permanent crop like an almond orchard or a vineyard, you're not tilling very much, but if you have vegetables, you're probably you're probably doing a lot of tillage. And reducing tillage is really needed because it destroys the fungal realm in the soil, and the fungal realm's crucial. Um, but if you're in an orchard, you don't have to till, and and you can start to at least not damage it through tillage. The um, the other part to that is is you've got to get diversity into the system. And the way we're doing that in many farms is to do winter cover cropping, which are multi-species with four different plant groups, legumes, grasses, and forbs. All of those are needed to feed the different biological life forms in the soil. And that sort of resets the soil for when you come back with your cash crop, which may be defined as maybe you're growing corn or you're growing wheat or whatever. So when your cash crop comes in, all the organisms are there ready to go to work. And then they work together, and then you harvest, and then you come back and plant your cover crop again and reset your biology in the system. And you system. don't need the chemicals. You don't need the chemicals, and we don't want the tillage. <laughs> we got to get yeah. away from it yeah. best so, we can. So how do, when you're talking about the tillage, that's turning over the soil. That it's is. what we see as we're driving down 101 yes, when we got closer to King City. And or, that's vegetables, and, and it's mm-hmm. really tough. We've worked with five vegetable farmers we and the University of California and Chico, and we had a grant to try and work how do we reduce tillage. And the farmers were very innovative. 
But in some cases, they could reduce a lot. Some cases, not as much. We're still working on that because that Mm -hmm. is a challenge. You've got to get a good seed bed, and they want to start a lot of their plants from seed. And so that's part of the challenge. How do you incorporate residue without tillage? And we've worked it out in some scenarios where you're just minorly disturbing the top two inches but not the lower levels um, and making those systems work. But it's, it's an ongoing learning. It's ongoing research. We know we're going to get there because we have to for issues of climate and hunger and water cycles. So. Yeah. And so, so that, you know, for a novice mind here, so when you're, you're actually rotating crops in, right? So you're planting something different than mm-hmm. your main crop. Yeah. You're, what do you do? You allow that to grow yes. and, and you can sell that? No, the idea is to you leave it. Let... See, Phyllis is with us on this one. <laughs> okay. She understands. It's right. We're we're actually you, you don't want to take all of the carbon away by harvesting it, cutting it, and hauling it off. Okay. You actually want to reinvest in the life of the soil, okay. and that carbon is the food source uh-huh. for a lot of the biology. So it's not just the root exudates that the plant gives to the biology; it's also what's going to decay and decompose by the biology and the earthworms. Earthworms pull all that leaf matter down into the soil, open up air spaces, let water percolate, let gases come in and exchange. Mm -hmm. Do you know that 74% of our air is nitrogen? That's Hmm. free nitrogen for the biology to convert to feed the plant. And that's when we get it all right. Nature figured this out a billion years ago or so. (laughs) We're just learning. Yeah. So you leave it. You leave we leave it. that cover crop, and then we'll, of course, harvest our cash crop. Yeah. Interesting. How, how, many, um, how much do you think out of the percentage of farmers in the U.S. right now are using this? More and more are adapting aspects. Really? More and more are going to cover crops. More and more are reducing tillage. And that's really the important two elements that we're looking at regeneratively. There are other components that can be added. Uh, But you've got to get diversity back into the system. You know, all of our pollinators, all of our insects, they need the diversity. All of our bird life needs that diversity. And and as Wilson had said once, if we lost our insects, humanity would disappear within a year. Everything would rot and decay. And so we always think of bugs as pests. Well, for every pest we have for a crop, there's a thousand beneficial insects. So we want them all there. The birds don't want us to destroy the insects. That's right. their, um, That's their food, their food source. source. Right. It's part of our whole complex living system that supports life on Earth. Wow. Well, we're going to take a brief break here, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Brad, and we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you very much. We will return to Central Coast Voices in just a moment. Uh, This message, though, tickets for the Live Oak Music Festival are now on sale at early bird prices. Uh, It's your chance to get tickets at a discounted price, and Live Oak is happening June 14th through the 16th at El Choro Regional Park. It will feature more than 30 bands, jamming workshops, yoga, art, food, drinks, and, of course, lots of fun. If you've never been, it is an experience. So get your tickets now and get them at early bird prices at liveoakfest.org. Live Oak is a fundraiser for KCBX. We'll return to Central Coast Voices after these messages. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, with love and light, we honor the life of Maria Emilia Martin, founder of Latino USA and trailblazing public radio journalist. I think about all the people that she reported on. Those voices, we wouldn't have heard them unless Maria reported it from them. That's next time on Latino USA. 
On the next Fresh Air, why homeschooling is America's fastest growing form of education. We talk with Washington Post reporter Peter Jamison, who says homeschoolers are an increasingly diverse group with a variety of motivations. But some advocates say poor regulation of homeschooling may shortchange kids academically and leave them at greater risk of abuse. Join us. You got boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z all in the same workplace. That presents some challenges. Unstated is, I don't know how to manage somebody who looks like my dad, you know. I'm Kai Rizdal, older workers and much younger workers. We'll have that story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers, of course, from Wall Street, next time on Marketplace. That's all ahead today on KCBX. Latino USA is coming up next at 2 o'clock, with Fresh Air following at 3, and then Marketplace at 4. Right now, let's return to Chris Kington Barker and her guests on Central Coast Voices. Back to you, Chris. Thank you, Brad. And I want to welcome you back to um, spending some time with me and my guest, Phyllis Davies, a longtime local and international activist, Tim LaSalle, who's the co-founder uh, for Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems, CSU Chico, and a board member for Groundswell International. And we've been talking about Groundswell in the work that it's doing and also about the passion for regenerational farming by both Phyllis and Tim. And, you know, you both mentioned a number of times women and farming. And so, Phyllis, I'm going to go to you because you've got a real woman in farming look on your face (laughs) right now. Why women in farming? Why the focus there? Well, women are the farmers of the world. And uh, we somehow have have transferred the concept of farmers to men. Yeah. <laughs> and truly, it's a woman with a hole in her hand and a baby in her stomach and a baby at her side that is farming the world. Mm. And so when you go to countries, other countries, you're actually also looking for women and saying, mm-hmm. you know, this is – really something that you're going to carry forward. And women as a, as a group work well together. And so that's the reason that the Grameen Bank and Mohammed Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, do you remember when he, what year he won it? The year, no, but yeah, decades ago, but yes. But uh, he, he uh, took the idea of, of women and savings banks in, and he started in Bangladesh. Have you ever worked in Bangladesh? No, I, I have just visited. But, you know, it is what Groundswell does, too, now with savings and lending. The women create their own savings and then lend to each other for their own businesses or their own farming enterprises. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And I saw that so clearly in Haiti mm-hmm. when I was there mm-hmm. with Kantav, who mm-hmm. we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier He's a wonderful promoter and an extensionist. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Kantav was is one of the twelve original founders of Groundswell, mm-hmm. and he's continuing to function with Groundswell's development work in Haiti mm-hmm. in a time of great unrest and disruption oh. as gangs have actually taken over the country yes. right now. Yeah, well, but those communities, Phyllis, that you visited, are continuing their work. Mm-hmm. And I think of uh, Ecuador right now mm-hmm. having its difficulties. And Steve, 
doing his wonderful work down there. Yeah. Yes, Stephen Sherrod, again, one of the founders, is a Ph.D. He's um, North American, but he has lived down there and carved kind of stone out of the side of the hill to build his house. But that same stone, he's converted to deep, rich soil um, and through the biological uh, regenerative approaches. And he's taught thousands of farmers through farmer field schools up there in the Andes in Ecuador. Uh, he's a great scientist and actually is a great educator uh, committed to helping smallholder farmers uh, actually produce enough food. But back to the women thing, Phyllis. But if we his could... wife is something else. Well, I haven't met her. I hope to someday. Oh, she's a lawyer. Yeah. And she's just a wonderful her. facilitator. But to the women, what's important, I think, and I think it's in Groundswell's deep, deep fiber, is that women are kind of the center of the community because of their focus on family and children and food and and now the economic stabilities of the family. So if you're going to really talk about community development or economic development in a lot of the developing world and you don't focus on women, you're going to miss perhaps the point. And in the rural places of the global south, we have to understand most of the world's food is produced by smallholder farmers. And mm-hmm. we always think, no, it's the big farms. It's not. It's the mm-hmm. smallholder farmers. And then if you go to most of the regions in the world, the smallholder farmers are women. <laughs> and the majority of them are. And so that becomes a really crucial element to deal with the primary issues of climate and hunger and water cycles and nutrition and economic stability. So it's a critical element for us to think of. In in the work that Groundswell is doing, is it also forming collaboratives with these women so they can support one another? Or is it independent, small farmer, small farmer, small farmer? You want to comment? Uh, I, they, they do support each other beautifully. And uh, Tim has some good examples of, of how, how that works. Yeah, the, the, this community piece, and one is these uh, savings and lending groups, and that's women. They become self-organized and self-monitoring and, and self-governed. But the community work also becomes that. But when it comes into teaching each other about this farming approach and, and technique, it's not about competing. It's literally about helping each other and, mm-hmm. and helping that community and their children uh, for the future. So there are, because Groundswell works with local and indigenous NGOs, nonprofits there, um, those nonprofits sometimes have broader goals and objectives than Groundswell's, but where we as an organization invest, and where Steve Brescia, the executive director, who will be out here in a, in a week or so, uh, helps working with those local NGOs is to be sure that, that we focus on what we're just talking about, we're, women investment, community investment, the economic and the soil investment, to be able to be sure this is sustainable. We want to be sure our work it comes into a, a scenario and spreads on its own because it's so successful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons Groundswell is so effective and efficient in the use of donor funds. It doesn't even have an office, if you can imagine. Yeah. They all work remotely. Uh, when we have our one annual in-person meeting, we fly to Washington, D.C. and from all over the world, and we do our face-to-face meeting, and otherwise we do it by Zoom. And we actually use the Kellogg facility there, which is a very inexpensive place to gather, um, even, and Washington, D.C. is expensive. And even Steve figured out how to do that inexpensively. <laughs> so it, it's a way to steward funds carefully. 
mm-hmm. and to be sure that they get to on the ground and help the people that our commitment is to serve. So the funds are going to the actual service rather than to administrative overhead. Absolutely. And they've been excellent stewards of that. And I have seen and evaluated some major NGOs that all of (laughs) you have heard of on TV. Yeah. And um, uh, that's why I'm pleased and proud to support the work of the Groundswell people. Yeah. And Phyllis, um, Tim mentioned that there's going to be a celebration here, a Groundswell International celebration of their 15th anniversary, and it's going to happen here in San Luis Obispo, Uh right? Yes. Yeah, and I think that something that's going to happen with that is that you and your family are going to be recognized. We are going to recognize them. Yes. If I may just jump she's in here. To, she's she doesn't even she doesn't even know know what, but we're not buying them a limousine. Anyway, what <laughs> right. we're doing is we really want to recognize and thank Bill and Phyllis and, and Donna Davies for the kind of commitment that they've had to this community, but to the global community. And we want to resurrect that legacy, the legacy that they started to get so many people engaged. I remember Decades ago, um, this community in San Luis Obispo actually represented one time the largest block grants to the old organization, World Neighbor, was because of the commitment Bill and Phyllis helped stimulate about thinking beyond our own front door. How can we help? What can we do in, in a grander way? And we want to resurrect that. San Luis Obispo is a great community with a lot of people that are concerned about major issues. And this is a chance to actually, in in the Davies sort of legacy, a chance to honor Bill and Phyllis and to think about how we carry on what they kind of asked us to do. And, And is this something that is open to the public? Or Absolutely. We, we, we've sent out invitations, but, but we're going to, uh, I guess, announce where it is on, on, yeah. the, on the 27th, and we, it's an open door. We'd love for anybody to come and ask questions and meet Bill and Phyllis if they haven't already, uh, which you'd be a rare person in this community. But if you haven't, come and <laughs> meet them, and then we'll have an opportunity with Steve Brescia from Washington, D.C. to come and and actually be the source um, uh, for all of the programs going on in Central America, South America, Nepal and India, and and then Western Africa. Yeah, and this is going to take place on January 28th. It's a Saturday. It's going to be from 2 to 4 p.m., and it's at the United Church of Christ on Lesos Valley Road. And I'll announce that one more time. It's and we have a we have 27th. a call twenty seventh. Oh, it's the twenty seventh. Excuse me, Saturday yes. the twenty seventh, yeah. uh, from two to four p.m. And we're going to take a call from Ken. Hi, Ken. Uh, hello. Um, I wanted to uh, just say this has been a wonderful program. Uh, uh, I'm calling partly as my role with the uh, Central Coast Center for Ecological uh, Civilization. And uh, we are excited to uh, have uh, Dr. Uh, Tim LaSalle uh, with us at the Unitarian uh, Universalists San Luis Obispo uh, at, on the 28th, which is the Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. And um, he's good. That's next Sunday, that's the 28th, uh-huh. and uh, and it's about, um, we're going to be talking a lot about his work, 
and, you know, from the focus of what we can do here uh, locally um, and, uh, you know, what we can do to support regenerative farming here and become more aware of what's going on uh, because our focus is, is uh, how do we become an ecological civilization rather than uh, some of the messes that we've gotten ourselves into. Beautiful. We look forward to that as well uh, with great excitement. Great. And thank you so much for calling in and reminding us, see, I had the 28th written down for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Uh, One of the things that I try to help people with and and, uh, Dr. Uh, Tim LaSalle and – you know, is is really letting us know uh, is that uh, there's no reason to lose hope with all of the uh, issues that are uh, coming Mm. up is that uh, it's a lot of work, but we can do that work. I love hearing that. There's so much that we don't feel like we can control, and it's too far beyond where we can reach. So thank you for saying that, Ken. Yeah, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, uh, you know, on the global level, and uh, I'm certainly going to look more deeply into Groundswell. Great. I think they're happy about that, too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to come on the 27th. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Bye, Ken. And we're going to Hunter in Texas. Hi, Hunter. Hello there, everybody. Well, hi, Um, Hunter. (laughs) This is wonderful. Hi, Tim and and Phyllis. Thank you for the um, card. (laughs) I'm just calling in with the a big thank you to both of you. I I would say that uh, I'm a testament to one of Phyllis's many uh, contributions to our local sustainable and regenerative ag oh in San goodness. Luis Obispo. Can you say more um, about that, Hunter? Sure. I I was the co-founder and for many years the director of the Center for Sustainability at Cal Poly in the College of Agriculture, and Phyllis from the early days was one of our key benefactors uh, and supporters of the program and was was with us as the organization grew and as we helped to grow the organic farming program at Cal Poly. And by benefactor, I mean not just financially, but she was a, a co-collaborator on many events, gatherings, talks, and all kinds of exchanges. It seems like for many years her uh, her home was a real hub of activity, so we definitely appreciate that. And um, and I just wanted to encourage people to come to that event on the 27th. I think it's going to be a great one. Um, I guess I would put out a general question uh, for you, Phyllis. I know you've mentioned a couple of the places that you've been. It seems like you've been to dozens of countries around the world. Are there any particular voyages that really stand out for you? Um, or that were particularly memorable in terms of examples of what Groundswell has done internationally? The work at Guatemala has been uh, very, very interesting. And also Mm. uh, the work in South America Mm. um, and in Africa, my goodness, uh, Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. and uh, really up through Egypt, it's it's really uh, been amazing. If I can add, Hunter, uh, Judelon and I just came back from Guatemala this last March visiting some of the groundswell work. We were also visiting part of Howard Buffett's work down there with Catholic Relief Services. And 
the, the work with the Mayans that Groundswell is doing um, up in the mountains uh, where they had been kind of chased when one dam was being developed and they were pushed off their land. Uh, it's in a dry zone in Guatemala, and it's one uh, very remarkable and interestingly enough, not surprisingly, all the farmers we saw were women <laughs> that were doing a great job with uh, regenerating their soils and, and building sustainable, long-term economic uh, stability for their families. Wow. Well, not having seen it firsthand, it does seem like from all the reports that they just do an excellent job of making those community connections, which I think really, really is what helps uh, create the resilience and the ongoing nature of some of these programs. So anyhow, this is just a shout out to all that you guys have done to help build the, the connections in our own community. Um, thank you to you and all our best of luck in the coming We event. really miss you, Hunter. Hunter, <laughs> thanks for calling in, and I understand put a sweater on. It's cold there, right? <laughs> Actually, it's 70 degrees Oh, today, no! So You're better than us. <laughs> right. yeah. Good. Thank you, Hunter, for calling in. Okay. And we're going to go to Rosemary from San Luis Obispo. Rosemary, are you there? <laughs> Oh, no. You're better than us. Rose, Rosemary? Thank you, for calling Okay. Rosemary? And we're going to go to Rosemary from San Luis Obispo. Rosemary. Okay. We had Rosemary, but she was listening, I think, to the radio. Rosemary, if you want to call back with your question, please do, but we need you to turn your radio down so that you're not echoing and hearing it the wrong time. So I love that people are calling in and saying hello to you, Hunter, who obviously is in a Texas. very dear person to you. Yeah. Yes, in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I loved his question about, you know, which which is really most memorable to you. But it sounds like a lot of them are very yeah. memorable. Very to you. much so. Yeah. And um, with, with what you're doing, how... How are we doing in dealing with some of the climate change, some of the negative effects of it that this can do some reversal on? We, we're not doing what we should be doing. We're just educating and learning. And unfortunately, a lot of policymakers are looking for the data. And that's one of the reasons Dr. Cindy Daly and, at the Center for Regenerative Ag at Chico and I are committed with now her growing staff to really pull together side-by-side research projects where we have conventional farming next to regenerative, where we can actually verify with these eddy covariant towers how much carbon is being pulled out. We need to know that for, for carbon um, budgeting, for actually if carbon markets become focused on nature-based solutions instead of technological, expensive, and unproven solutions, right. so-called solutions, we actually know that that nature figured this out about a billion years ago. The way you take 4,000 parts per million out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil is through ramping up the amount of photosynthesis that's taking place. So if we put cover crops between all of our almond trees in this state, there's 2 million acres that now photosynthesize all winter long and not have dormant trees and bare soil, we increase the amount of photosynthesis capture and if we do it regeneratively, leave it in the soil for 100 years or so or longer. So we have the potential, as Dr. Christine Jones out of Australia says, if we increase the amount of photosynthesis 5% in the planet, that would equal the amount of CO2 being admitted. 
So while we have to reduce and stop our fossil fuel, what if we just all started to think in terms of regenerative farming with cover crops, of planting more plants outside, of taking care of those, and starting to actually not leave bare spaces? Let's stop destroying our good ag land and putting housing development on it. Let's use it as also a carbon capture mm-hmm. and a food supply mm-hmm. and a water cycling and a bird a biodiversity hosting environment. And let's build in other regions that are not like our dark soils that we're just building on you here. You know, in this Rosemary that just called in mm-hmm. is a beautiful example. Well, Rosemary's of, calling in right now. All right, let's, good. Let's see. Rosemary, are you there? Rosemary? You have to turn the radio off. Huh? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. And Rosemary keeps calling in with her radio on yeah. and we can't hear her. So, yeah, so we're, you know, if we talk about things like there was a, I think what she's going to ask about or wanted to ask about was migration effect when you mentioned that it has an effect on migration. Can you expand on that a little bit about mm-hmm. how how it can impact migration? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so much of our foreign policy is based upon trying to repress or stop something of, a, of an effect that has a systemic problem to it. And if we look at migration, why are people trying to come here? As a matter of fact, a lot of people trying to come through the Mexican border right now are are Chinese, but it's also Venezuelans. It's not just Central Americans, and it's Central Americans as well. But the point is why? Do -hmm. they want to leave their home? No. Do do, they want to uproot things and risk their lives and whatever to come here? No. So what's the root cause of the migration? And it's not just that this is a great place to live. It's that they are economically stressed or they're hungry, or they've been displaced. And so how do we invest in economic strength and stability and food security for them? And I understand Vice President Harris went down there to try and work on the systemic problems. And I know of one project I'm collaborating with a little bit in Guatemala that's received a little bit of those funds to try and help educate farmers, and this is what Groundswell is doing every day, to become more sustainable or economically sustainable and have food surpluses. Once you give them that, anybody, if you anybody, and they're comfortable in their culture and their home, uh, that creates stability and a lack of need for migration. But if they're hungry, if, if the community's unstable because of the poverty issues, then we're going to have the challenges and the pressures on migration that we have. Have have you seen an example of what you're talking about in some of the countries that you've seen the work take hold in? Yes, I mean I, I can cite that this Mayan community, this Mayan community there in Guatemala. I will I will use that as one example because. Not only has Groundswell, working with, with the local NGO, been able to help and assist with the agroecological element, it has moved into them to be able to even create small little mini processing centers for the food that they are producing. So some of it gets packaged and it gets sold into the city, which brings more money back to them. So it's not just even the local market, but it goes into the town, and sometimes it goes beyond the town to be able to increase the economic strength of that community. And as those one woman that walked us up the hill uh, to her house, we were looking there, and her son was building an addition because he's going to move his family in. They're starting to have enough money 
to be able to actually build substantial structures, the family expand, more than one generation make a living off that small parcel of land. Uh, So that's how when you build soil health, you start to address a lot of the insecurities humans begin to suffer in rural areas from the standpoints of food shortages or economic capacities to be able to sustain their lives and stay where they were, were born if that's their choice. At yeah. least let's give them that choice. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm curious, um, how was it that you got involved in this? I heard the story from Phyllis, mm-hmm. but how was it that you did? So I have had a, a, uh, this, this long-term sort of uh, concern, particularly I have been in 99 countries sometimes um, for decades. First time I was in China, everybody was still on a bicycle, um, and that was in the 80s. So that, that country has dramatically shifted. But what I saw was continued soil degradation, continued impact by population pressure, and knowing that, wait a minute, this is not a sustainable run. So I began to ask the questions internally, how do we change this? And that's where I met some of the precursors to the groundswell people in Honduras showing us we can build an inch of topsoil a year. Well, that planted a seed. And I kept learning and investigating and, and, and trying to see how do we solve this. Well, well, groundswell is one entity that's working every day on this effort, and that's why I'm connected with them uh, because – my wife and I became donors, and we became, you know, volunteers, and and to help them do this. As I said, it's efficient, it's successful, and it's more than sustainable. It, it grows on its own. So, that's the kind of de- development we need. The millennial goals and things. I visited some of those millennial villages in Africa when we were there. And it's an odd thing, and, and they don't have good metrics of success, and they poured all this money into it. And then you see unsustainable development programs that go out and just bring food, and that can disrupt the, the local markets and disrupt a farmer's capacity to stay in, in business that. because yeah. their price just got destroyed. And, mm-hmm. and so if it's a famine scenario, you need to bring food. Right. But if it's not – and even when it is, we should plan ahead and have a lot of food stored in the region so that we're ahead of that and let the local farmers benefit from yeah. any of those kind of, of crises that occur so that they become a sustainable food-producing local system. That builds resiliency, and that builds economic strength for them. Right. And you're wanting to build health into the community themselves exactly. rather than going in with a savioristic That's right. Um, approach. That's you're right. going in to try and really assist people in finding right. where their strength and their For resilience sure. is. And one of the things I just I, I would highlight, you might ears become more sensitive to this kind of a dialogue. You listen to Bill Gates and a lot of development, they say we need more fertilizer. We, we all need to realize when soil gets very tired and very poor, there is not even a response to fertilizer. So mm-hmm. that's why we have to build a healthy soil back. But fertilizer is unsustainable. It's fossil fuel-based. And who's going to continue to subsidize it? So let's show them how. Let's show all of us how to produce food without a fossil fuel-based expensive input that actually contaminates our water systems. 
Absolutely. And again, I want to announce Groundswell International will celebrate their 15th anniversary and we'll be honoring Phyllis and Dave, Bill Davies and Donna Davies. Um, it's on Saturday, January 27th, 2 to 4 p.m., United Church of Christ, Los Osos Valley Road, and it is an open invitation. I want to thank my guest, Phyllis Davies, longtime local and international activist, Dr. Tim LaSalle, all co-founder for Gener- Center for Gen- Regeneration. <laughs> Regenerative Agriculture. I'm having trouble with that one. And Resilient (laughs) Systems, uh, CSU Chico and board member for Groundswell. Next week, please join host Lata Murti as she speaks with guests Rob Himoto, president of the Santa Maria Valley Railroad, and Shelley Klein, curator for Santa Maria Valley Historical Society, in discussion about the history of the Central Coast, its development, and current efforts to preserve the past. Central Coast Voices has been sponsored by San Luis Obispo Community Foundation in collaboration with KCBX. I'm Chris Kington-Barker, and thank you for joining us today.